Hello and welcome to our series of podcasts on mental health in the community, brought to you by the Mental Health Foundation and the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust. What we're trying to do is to share new ideas from around the world, addressing some of today's most pressing mental health challenges. I'll be talking to a number of Churchill Fellows who between 2016 and 2019 were funded to visit some of the world's best projects in this field and to bring fresh approaches for the UK. Our theme today is equality and diversity, how people from minority groups within the community may experience particular mental health problems and what can be done to support them. I'm joined by Dr. Erica McInnes, a chartered clinical psychologist and director of Nubia Wellness and Healing, and by Jackie Jobson, advocacy director of Connected Voice. Jackie, first to you. Your work with people from the LGBT community plus involves lots of different things, but tell me what particular mental health problems can some of these people face? I think people face a whole range of different mental health issues. I think what's interesting about LGBTQ people is that they face um, a lot of discrimination and then that impacts on their mental health. So um, that that might manifest itself in a lot of different ways. It it could be around trauma, anxiety, depression, any of those things. But I think the issue is that it kind of stems from suffering um, with minority stress if you like um and the the impact of discrimination and i mean do do they presumably openly talk to you about this but to others keep it rather quiet and that only compounds stress well i think you have to remember that um you know whilst there's been massive leaps in uh, awareness around lgbt issues and acceptance there are a lot of people in our community who still remember that it was illegal to be gay and so there's still some of that worries about what um, professionals or other people might think in terms of um, mental health and that the, their mental health might be um, seen as because they are from the LGBTQ plus community or yeah. their gender identity. Because, you know. I mean, I'm someone in, should we say, the autumn of his years and I've noticed things getting better significantly better than they were when I was growing up but that's not always the case you say no I think the the policy um, development is getting better um, and the law is getting better but in practice some you know um, for example um, hate crime is on the rise with LGBT communities and also I think it was very much a hidden um, issue and so people are talking about it more so um, so there's a kind of a mixture of whether it's on the increase or whether it's just people are able to be more open about the issue. Yeah, because that disturbing incident recently of the two young women on a bus being abused and yeah. thumped, frankly, yeah. by kids on the back seat. I mean, yeah. that that's never far below the surface, one feels. Absolutely. I mean, um, when I was doing the research and um, after I came back from um, my travels, um, there's been some more research um, saying that um, a third of um, people from LGBT communities don't feel safe enough to hold hands in public. And that's quite a shocking statistic, I think. Erica, are there overlaps between what you've heard Jackie say and the work you do and, and what you hear from people you work with? Um, well, there are members of the black community who are also members of the LGBTQ plus community and they experience all the experiences that Jackie's talked about 
plus um, the discrimination that they experience um, you know, due to their African heritage. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day about how it can be like a death by a thousand cuts when there's just lots of microaggressions. Um, shopping while black, um, working while black, um, driving while black. There's lots of various um, places where you have lots of slights, lots of accusations, lots of um, inferences of inferiority. And unless you have areas where your culture and your self-esteem can be affirmed um, to kind of like help you have a healthy sense of self to um, counter those attacks on you, um, it can leave you more prevalent to experiences of anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, and even people you know feeling quite uh, aggrieved and not having a positive outlet for that. I mean, paint me a picture of the kinds of ways, the practical examples of ways in which black people of African heritage are experiencing mental health issues. Um, I think um, the um, how it can culminate is the high exclusion rates from schools um, of of um, you know children of African heritage, or they're actually still within the school system, but they're excluded from the classroom. There's high rates of uh, disciplines within the workplace where black people are being disciplined or there's reorganisation of services and they're losing their jobs um, or they're being given um, the worst work with the worst um, um, support or they're underemployed given their qualifications. Um, overrepresentation of black people within the mental health system but sometimes it can be that black people are not getting um, the support they need in the mental health system or not getting the medication they need in the mental health system because people say well we don't want to over medicate and we don't over we don't want to over um, diagnose so that means that they're not getting a diagnosis when if they got one it would be helpful um, a lot of the support systems that black people um, are experiencing in the mental health service aren't quite meeting the match. So you don't know whether they're not engaging because the support system isn't right for them or they're not engaging um, because they, you know, they don't want to and they need a different format for it being delivered. And that's um, what some of my fellowship was about. I, I experienced different types of um, provisions of services. And in terms of you know, what it looks like and feels like, we're talking about depression, we're talking about anxiety, we might be talking about anger, we might be talking about addiction, all these things that are direct consequences of being a still oppressed minority. I think you make a very good point there, it's about how do we cope with these everyday pressures um, and sometimes um, we haven't got access to healthy outlets and that's where it can then lead to people um, with addictions or it can lead to people uh, having what we call high functioning depression or high functioning anxiety they can still do the job um, but it's at what cost to them and they can sometimes experience burnout where it means that they carry on for a while but then they actually become overwhelmed uh, and they find that they're they've got presentees and they may be present on the job but not actually be able to function very well in the job because of the actual um, impact of a lot of um, oppression in various areas or a lot of um, kind of like lack of opportunities in various areas. So what you're proposing is an African-centred approach what is that? Mm -hmm. Well, um, an African-centred approach is very much saying that 
Um, we want um, to use the best of African culture um, and the best of African thought and practice uh, as a wellness model. It isn't saying that Eurocentric models aren't something that we can tap into, but we're finding for a lot of the black community, um, it isn't um, healing enough of them quickly enough. So we need to supplement that with other approaches. So um, when I went on my fellowship, um, I went to America and I studied some organisations that were running from an African-centred perspective. So it would be even simple things such as the decor in the building, the pictures in the building, the artwork were of African origin. Um, so when it comes to kind of like some of the sayings, uh, when it comes to proverbs that may be on the walls, those proverbs would be inspirational quotes from um, black um, authors or that are relevant to the black community so it can mean that people um, feel their culture is welcome and feel their culture is affirmed and feel that their culture is the norm so encouraging people to come to work in African traditional African dress if that is what they want. I mean Jackie are you able to to tap into the for want of a better world the LGBT culture if you like and point at things that can take them further and beyond I think um, from my own personal experience I had um, struggled with um, mental health in terms of depression when I was at university and um, I felt very isolated in in that environment and I think a protective factor for me which made me get um, become more well was having a, a kind of a group of lesbian women in Newcastle, um, a, a feminist group who were very supportive of each other and um, most of whom I'm still friends with who have got long-standing friendships. So I think I, I was incredibly lucky in terms of creating that community. I still have my um, parents in my life and you know that was problematic at times but um, I wasn't thrown out um, as a teenager um, some um, young lesbian and gay men and particularly trans and non-binary people these days find um, so um, for me being part of the LGBT community has been um, incredibly positive well we only have to look at you I think there's a picture of you at the Sydney Mardi Gras Absolutely. complete with rainbow ears and face paint it's <laughs> a long way from the way you did describe yourself as an out older lesbian mental health survivor Absolutely, yes. You've clearly survived it, but what of your experiences, how have they fed into your professional understanding of mental health and what you do now? Well, in, um, my previous um, role a number of years ago was, was um, I was a senior manager in a mental health charity and I was very, um, it was very important for me to um, be out as a mental health survivor as much as I was out as a lesbian because... Um, I wanted to be a role model to say, um, you know, I know it sounds a cliche, but things can get better. But tell me, for those who might not know what you've gone through, what mental unease felt like for you and how it manifested itself in your earlier yeah. life? Um, for me, I think um, depression is just like a black cloud over your life. You know, I um, really struggled to... Um, be be motivated um, to do the things I want to do. Um, I felt like my work sucked all of my energy out of me, and I I didn't feel like um, I could really. I was just like living half a life, really. And um, for a lot of years, I kind of found um, 
different types of counselling and got support through that. I took different types of medication and I still go back to medication sometimes if I'm feeling particularly in, in need of that. But for me, it was a kind of pervasiveness. I mean, is there such a thing as black psychology? You sort of hinted at it, but does it exist? Well, yes, there's the, the paradigm of um, black psychology, also known as African psychology, and it dates back as far as the ancient Egyptians and the healing methods that they use um, to spiritually get people well enough to build um, great monuments like the Sphinx, the pyramids, the tombs. And the ancient Egyptians, um, you know, the early dynasties, they were black. So the origins of um, African psychology are quite, um, you know, quite long-standing. And it was the Greeks that came along and stole a, a lot of that knowledge. And um, they left the spiritual parts of it and stole perhaps the cognitive bits and the behavioral bits and repackaged it as their own. Um, but it's clear to say that when you look at the papyrus and what's written in the papyrus on the tombs and the, um, in the pyramids, that is referring to ways of well-being. Well, I want to take us from ancient Egypt <laughs> to present-day Washington, which is where you visited, and Jackie, uh, Canada and Australia for you, Toronto, Sydney and Melbourne. What are, what are the Australians and the Canadians getting right, according to your experience, that we are kind of missing? I think um, when I talk to people um, in both um, Toronto and Canada and in Sydney and Melbourne, they... Um, had experienced uh, that the UK was at the forefront of LGBT um, equalities and then it kind of stalled and they've carried on that legacy they would say and they've made improvements um, so they have moved from the um, approach of we're all equal here to um, looking at um, making sure that services um, both in mental health and um, for older people and general health services are what they call culturally competent and also in um, areas in the large cities um, that there are specialist LGBTQ plus mental health services. And in practice, what are they? How do they, what do they look like? And how well, are they different they're, from they're, they're based in LGBT community services where people feel comfortable they often have uh, lgbtq counselors or psychologists who are kind of have an awareness and a background um so that you know they're going into a a one-to-one -one session or a group session where they're not having to think is this person who i'm about to meet prejudiced are they will they be able to understand things from my worldview or not so that all of that is already kind of dismissed in a way and they feel comfortable and they feel that you know that they can start from a position of feeling like this person's on my side because you use the word or the phrase cultural competence and erica you've used the word the phrase culturally informed so we're talking about the same thing what does that mean in practice about you know what what the services that you'd like to see look like well, um, um, you've got about culturally informed services where they may know about different cultures, but 
Um, I've more recently been moving to a position about culturally syntonic services, ooh, where ooh. They, they, they <laughs> wait a minute, you better you better unpack that. <laughs> um, syntonic in that they can move and slide with the person. So to saying that as people we can move in and out of our cultural identities because we've got so many different cultures that we belong to. So there will be some times when I will listen to classical music and I'll very much enjoy that and get something out of it. Ten minutes later, I may be listening to music with a heavy drum and bass rhythm. Um, and I'm a, a member of multiple cultures and different ones need feeding at different times. And we're trying to get services to offer a range of approaches that as people move and where people are, they can actually fit them. But I mean, this is perhaps a, I hope it's not insensitive, but a controversial question. Are you perhaps suggesting, though, that only black people can heal black people with problems and likewise only gay people can do the same? I no, I'm not suggesting that. I think if you're talking about things that are in relation to your uh, um, your culture, it's it's quicker and it's safer if somebody understands that, and that um, you're, they're not questioning your kind of worldview, and you're not having to explain things, and you're not having to counter prejudice. Um, so, for example, uh, I think one of the statistics is something like 23% of LGBT people have heard a health professional say discriminatory things about LGBT people in their, um, in their earshot. So the kind of impact of that kind of damages the trust of the professional relationship. The answer I always give to that question is to say that um, there aren't enough um, black psychologists around there to treat all the black people who've got mental health problems in this country at the moment. So if we left African psychology to just be um, done by, by black health professionals, um, there'd be a lot of people that would miss out. And my own introduction into African psychology um, in the early days was actually by white people who knew about it. Um, so I think it's about everybody and just like we all experience Eurocentric psychology I think everybody can be exposed to African psychology and to get something from it um, and everybody can practice from that perspective I think there may be a, an additional um, understanding that people who are from that culture may bring to the situation because they're having um, lived through and experienced some of it rather than somebody who's explaining what it's like Take, take us to Washington and what yes. you saw there and what we yeah. can learn from that. Um, I spent some time at a historically black college and university out there, Howard University. So what I experienced is being educated in a, in a predominantly black environment uh, where black was the norm. And what I found is that sometimes as a black person, um, you're having to manage um, the, uh, the, the racial tension sometimes in the room uh, and your access to education can depend on how well you manage the racism in the room. What I found is that I didn't have to have that experience there. I could really devote all my energies to the learning there um, because it was, um, it was a black majority environment and there were people who had similar experiences to me in, in very many ways. So that was a, a very nice experience for me. Um, I also then spent some time at the different services uh, that were operating from an African-centred perspective, offering healthcare to, to people, and they each had their different speciali specialism. And, and again, that was something nice about what I could learn to be able to bring back to this country. Because the way you describe it, I mean, it, it sounds like it was a really liberating experience. Yeah. I mean, would, would you say that, you know, an all-black college in Britain is a possibility or even desirable? 
And um, what if we think, if you think of the history of how you got the historically black colleges and universities, that was from the time of segregation in America. So then you had your white only colleges and you had your black only colleges. And then when desegregation came about, white people could enter black colleges and universities and black people could enter the, the ones that were traditionally white. Um, so what I think it's about, about having that option and it's about maybe, you know, modules which are, you know, working from an African centred perspective that everybody can experience. Um, but knowing that it may be that black people um, are more kind of like um, feel more comfortable there and may come to it more readily. I mean, you're a brilliant advocate for this. And Jackie, you've talked about proper advocacy in your own field. What, what do you mean by that? Who should be standing up there talking about it? Okay, so um, I, as, as part of our organisation, we provide um, something called independent advocacy, which is kind of slightly different from what I would say advocacy with a small A is. So it's capital independent advocacy. And um, that is about um, people who are supporting people to um, understand their rights um, and protect their kind of rights um, but also support them to self-advocate and speak up for themselves and then um, kind of represent them if they're not able to do that in terms of justice social justice and equality and during your travels in Toronto Sydney and Melbourne did you see that those advocates were, were in place up and running I was looking for things that were like advocacy um, but um, so a lot of community support work um and um, I did in Toronto. I did speak to an empowerment council, um, and and they were involved in um, mad studies, um, which was survivor led, um, learning about um, mental health from a um, survivor perspective and peer advocacy, supporting each other. So I learned lots of new stuff in terms of um, kind of community mental health stuff but not necessarily independent advocacy as I know it. So when you've come back bringing some of these innovations and new methods do you find people are listening to you? Absolutely I think people are um, it's it's been very helpful um, that um, the government has been um, has kind of echoed some of the work that I've been doing so um, it's after I came back and I'd written my report, very quickly after that, there was a consultation from um, the um, government about LGBTQ um, needs and there was a survey and um, then there was an action plan produced and I was able to um, kind of send in my report as part of that and when the, the action plan um, came out, it it absolutely echoed some of the things that I was saying. So um. um it's kind of part of a national agenda, I guess. I mean, that's pretty positive from Jackie's point of view. Are you making the similar inroads, Erica, with government or local authority or health authorities or you name it? Um, I think my um, interest has been very much at a community level and very much at the individual level, uh, getting people knowing about African psychology and getting them 
um, tapping into um, experiences of African psychology that's accessible to them. I think if we do too much at a strategic level, um, then when they're wanting to offer African-centred perspectives and services to people, people won't know what it is. So then won't actually agree to it because they'll say, we don't know what it is. So you need to almost like at a grassroots level, drum up some support, some interest, that when later on it then comes at a more um, governmental or institutional level, they can say, yes, this is what we want this is what we need, we've experienced a taste of it and we want more of it and then we want the government to make it kind of like more strategy for us. And how do you, at a grassroots level as you put it, get people interested? I mean, some of the language you use sounds almost like first year or even graduate level psychological understandings i mean how do you get through at a you know one-to-one level at youngsters that don't have either the culture or perhaps the psychological insight that african heritage stuff will help their mental well-being um, How do you lot, get them in? Well, a lot of it is already out there in the community. So there's already um, a lot of African-centred um, um, work being done. Um, the Festival of Kwanzaa that takes place um, within the black community, that is a African psychology um, through um, the rituals that take place around that. There's already a lot going on. Um, carnivals and the dance and the expression that takes place with the Again, that's a healing method where people can really dance through um, a lot of their blues and a lot of their uh, um, th- their difficulties and forget about it for a day before they go back to it so there's already a lot going on what we're doing sometimes is offering it in a more formalized way um, a more academic way sometimes with references a more experiential way when we actually get people to do practical exercises and I wonder whether we're offering it to different um, sections of the black community that may not have always already had it accessible to them and for the ones that have already had it we're just packaging it in, in a different way to make it um, um, more formalized for them. I mean Jackie is there any, anything you can learn from that yourself you know transferring elements of culture elements of I don't know what to people who are already within that community? I think that um, I think similarly there's echoes of that in, um, in the LGBT community. We have LGBTQ History Month where people are celebrating role models and the hi- the history. But also I think at a, um, I see it happening at lots of different levels in terms of we need to do strategic work to change um, kind of policy. We need practitioners to change in, in terms of being able to be open to different um, and having the tools to work with LGBT communities. Um, but also, I think when I've been talking to um, m- people in my community, they're very interested in this issue about um, trauma and the impact of kind of microaggressions. If people are thinking, oh, yeah, I, rec- I can really relate to that, you know, um, it makes me feel like it's not just me that you know that there are other people um that this has a similar impact on and that this is about a societal thing rather than an individual thing so i think people have been really interested in thinking oh wow i think i can see where that has happened in my life and with some of my friends as well so it's at all levels really and at one particular level that you've actually highlighted this is trans health Absolutely. is a priority uh, I think I know the answer to this but I'll ask you anyway why well um 
I think that uh, there's been a lot more uh, awareness around um, trans people and non-binary people. Um, people have um, there's more people that have been coming out, um, and um, but as a result of that, there's been a, a lot of um, negative press and a lot of campaigning around the the right to be trans, and that has had a, a really massive um, impact on people's um, mental health in terms of. Um, kind of feeling under assault um from um sometimes within the lgbt community as well as kind of um outside and do you find that in canada in australia they're ahead of the game in this regard yeah they're kind of like what the heck is going on in the uk <laughs> um so i think and also they've started developing um kind of trans specific services um where people are getting more access to services that aren't um, seeing the person as having um, mental health issues so that they're not seeing people as being um, having dysphoria around their bodies um, so um, they're seeing people more as being able to choose a different um, gender identity um, and have consent around transitioning rather than going through a, a kind of medical mental health lens so um and i think people in the uk are looking to looking over other parts of the um, world where people are being able to more readily get access to services and it's massive waiting lists in the uk which has a real impact on people's mental health while they're waiting to live their real lives and since you came back erica what support have you had to make you know your findings and your observations practical reality well, since coming back, I gained um, post-fellowship funding from the Winston Church Memorial Trust um, because what people are saying is that they were getting information on um, the theory of African psychology, um, but they wanted some tools to help put it in practice. So what I developed was Know Thyself Adinka symbols. So um, Know Thyself Adinka cards. So what it is, it's a set of cards with Adinka symbols. These are symbols that originate from West Africa, uh, particularly the Ashanti and the Aiken tribes um, in what we now modernly called Ghana. Um, and it's using those different symbols, each have meanings associated with it. And these um, symbols uh, represent cultural concepts that are quite important in cultures of African origin. So I put them together conveniently in a, in a deck of cards with more information on the back of them and the traditional language on the front of them as well as English. And what we're finding is that people are able to use them um, in groups as icebreakers. So you pop them on the chairs. And so some of the things about like friendship, um, you've got some of them like uh, God's presence and protection, freedom, um, loyalty, um, to be cautious on, and on the lookout. And ask people, say, what does that card mean to you? And I use it in therapy with people as well to get them to sort through the, the pack. There's 50 in a, in a pack and to sort through the cards and to pick out the ones that say something to them that are meaningful to them and then ask them, why is that meaningful to them? So it's really getting people to express themselves using African cultural concepts and things that may be quite relevant to, to their community. So if it wasn't for the, the fellowship, I wouldn't have found out about these symbols. Um, and then the post-fellowship funding helped me to put them into practice in terms of developing a tool um, that people can use. In terms of what I've been doing um, since the fellowship, I think um, 
some of the my organisation has um, has been very supportive um, in terms of we've been applying for funding for hate crime advocacy, to, which includes LGBT people, and also been able to um, lobby some of the health services to um, allow us to work with LGBT community members around health and care. But also I've been working within the advocacy sector. So um, I've um, presented at the last two national advocacy conferences and raising awareness of LGBT issues and also um, done some work around the advocacy sector quality standards to include LGBT issues in more strongly in the equality and diversity section of that. So I feel like um, I'm creating some legacy within the both the advocacy sector and the community and voluntary sector as well. So on the evidence of your travels from America, uh, Canada and Australia, as, as Churchill Fellows, what, let's say, two or three principal recommendations would you make? Erica? Um, I think for me it's about not being reliant on the system to meet your needs. Sometimes you've got to put services together yourself to meet your needs um, and then the system will either then take you on board um, um, or leave you to get on with it but you can't be waiting um, on a system to do it for you because sometimes there may not be any benefit to the wider system and institutions to meet your needs. So a final word to you Jackie? Um, I guess for me was that combination of trying to change the system um, through cultural competence and um, also being able to deliver specialist LGBT services and also uh, an awareness of um, trauma and um, maybe seeing that some of that um, kind of integrated into um, the mental health services in the UK. And is change in the air? Hopefully. <laughs> there we'll leave it. Eric McInnes, Jackie Jobson, thank you. And thanks to you for listening. This has been one in a series of podcasts sharing insights from the Mental Health Fellowships Programme. To find the full body of research produced by all Churchill Fellows, visit the Mental Health Foundation and Winston Churchill Memorial Trust websites. Mm-hmm.